This is a test. This station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. This is only a test. Hello, Good News Nation. The Good News is back after a small hiatus, and we are glad to be back. I am your co-host, Kara Hayes, and joined as always with the Reverend Doctor. How's it going? It is going. There's been a lot that's gone on since our last show. Yes. I'm going to start off by saying, rest in peace, Ross Perot. Yes, that that was sad. I that, remember him as a you know from growing up. Well, everybody does. Like, okay, he ran in 1992. That was his big claim to fame right there. But he ran again in '96. But that was a little bit less memorable that time around. But what what do you remember most about him? Because me personally, I remember him as being like he was so out of place in the 92 election. Like he was this true American statesman almost when you go back and look at it, like the last true one we had run for president, like in that old school, um, make or model. Yeah. I guess, Cause I went back and looked at a couple of videos, um, when I found out he died of him on stage debating and he had George, w., uh, uh, George H W Bush and Bill Clinton surrounding him on both sides and when he starts talking, instead of really replying honestly or having any kind of intellectual honesty to their rebuttals to him, they just kind of sit and smirk. And it's like, you know that they're both thinking he's not part of the club. Very, very much so. Very much so. I, I always liked him partially because he kind of seemed like everybody's grandpa. I know. He really did. He just seemed like, hey, I'm this normal guy. I mean, he had money. You know, that kind of goes without saying. But he just came across as this pure-ish American, you know, I want to see my country succeed, and here's how we can do it. He, he definitely was way past his time, and that's unfortunate because yeah. he's a man who could never be a president in the media age, in the age of television. Yes. It's like the video killed the radio store thing with music, like... <laughs> You get exactly what I mean by that, and I think everybody listening knows what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah, I think so, too. I yeah. think so, too. So, what so. else? Okay, a big one we need to go into is, even though this has been an ongoing issue for a while now, ever since our last show, there was the sentencing of the Nexium members. Yes. So, go into that for just a little bit. So, I've not really kept up on, on the whole trial um, as far as what's been going on. I haven't kept up during the trial phase, but uh, leading up to it, I mean, this was a subject I went all in on yeah. for, for a long, long time there. And the thing that's interesting to me is that the media has taken so much care in presenting this as... In presenting Nexium as this group of ragtag eccentrics, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, I know that there, there's a cultish vibe to it, but... They kind of make it seem like, okay, these are all consenting adults who just, you know, were into some kind of kinky sex, like weird stuff. But when you really, like, read the charges and what was going on against them, there's legit sex trafficking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They had women from Mexico who they were keeping branded, confined in rooms for years at a time that they were selling, pimping out to the elite. Yeah, which 
you know, some people I am aware don't believe there is sex trafficking going on to to the extent that it gets talked about or doesn't get talked about. Um, but it's a real thing. I mean, it's scary. Well, there was an FBI statistic that I read probably about two, three years ago that the one that's always interested me is they say that from the last year that they took um, actual uh, numbers on this or what their estimates are anyway, they believe that there's now at this point, more slaves within the boundaries of the United States than there were at any time since before 1865. What? Yeah, no shit. Oh my god. Yeah. That's really terrifying. Yeah. I... No, it's a real, legit industry. Oh, I mean, not a, not a legit industry, but it's an industry. Yeah. Wow. That's... And, and to me, when I looked at the, the Nexium case, it seems clear to me what's going on is that you know, the the guy at the very top of the pyramid, Keith Raniere, in this case, was a pimp. That yep. Allison Mack and these, you know, Hollywood actors that he had working for him were handlers. Mm-hmm. You know, they were ba- being bankrolled by the Seagram's fortune, uh, by a woman who's also a Rothschild by blood. And they had, like I said, women from south of the border who had been branded and were being sold to the elite. I mean, it's an act. It's a sex trafficking ring. It's not what the media has tried to make it presented as. Because I think if they were completely honest about it, it would raise way too many questions about other people. Agreed. And you know, it reminds me. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly, but there was. I think it was maybe back in the 80s or the 90s. There was the accusation that like President Bush and you know all of these like. Uh, elites and rich people where they they were getting young well i say young boys because that's yeah. the case that i remember but there's I a mean, docu- there's really... a documentary about it on uh youtube that they had originally filmed for a and e but it was pulled from the network but it was called uh the boy business if i remember it right oh and no, I know exactly what you're talking about. It goes all into it. I mean, this is a subject that goes way, way, way back. Yeah, and it, you know, it, it doesn't get a lot. It doesn't get the coverage that it should, right? Because you you can't call out, you know, presidents and former presidents and you know the big business people. Oh no, we have to protect them. Yeah, and I mean, a way I've always thought of it is that, you know, when we were doing the show about on the Satanic Panic, how it's one of the biggest dirty secrets of, you know, not just small towns, but anywhere. It's pedophilia is something that goes, we all understand it goes on in every city in the country. Yep. On every street, usually in the country, it's there. Yep. It's, it's present in some way. But we want to, like, have this, this distance with thinking about our leaders. Yes. Or the people we watch on television. Yes, but it's they're, there. They're it's above true. that. Yeah. Yes. But it's it's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think sometimes we fail to realize that our presidents and our movie stars and directors and whatevers, they are just people. Yeah. They just happen to be in the public eye. There, there, there's just as much incidence of, you know wicked people and probably to me i think even more so because mm-hmm. they have the means and and the opportunity to get whatever it is that they want do you think of it sort of like the vatican 
And uh, hmm. well, Hollywood and Washington, for example, I'll tell you what I mean by yeah. that is that you know the Vat- we we rip on the Vatican a lot, mm-hmm. but you know at the same time we in- we on some level understand that yeah, not all Catholic priests molest children. Yes, but there's enough who do in high places to where ones who don't realize there's an enforced code of silence mm-hmm. where anytime. If anyone who was, you know, uh, good at heart and like honest wanted to come in and shake things up, they can't, because, you know, th- there's an implicit you're. We have more than one way of getting rid of you or sweeping this under the rug. Yeah, and and I, I have to say, I mean, that's that's a pretty good analogy because the you know there it's it's this enclave of we're we're gonna keep your little secret, right? And you know. They, and like you said, they have ways of dealing with people who try to whistleblow. Well, all groups are like that with their internal dynamic. I mean, police departments are like that when it comes to sweeping up crimes that go on within it because you're inside or you're outside. Yeah, us versus them. Hmm. Yeah. So coming in from Nexium, we've naturally got the one that's occupied everybody at social media for the last week Jeffrey Epstein oh man this is one I didn't think was ever going to happen to be honest you know reading you know realizing that this is basically I mean this is a decade old or more information yeah you know and they're finally you know being able or they're finally bringing charges against him um I I have to hope that you know they are on the up and up Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to prosecute you for this because you can do this, you know. But I, I'm really glad that they're getting this scumbag. Cause well, you know, back in 2006, he was given a sweetheart deal. Yes. Where he was allowed to serve like 18 months. 13 months. Yeah, I think was he was sentenced great. to 18, but he only served 13, and it was under house arrest. Yeah, oh, it, it was six days a week he was able to go out of the prison. To his office, to, that's yes, right. Yes, to work. Okay. Oh, gosh, that sounds so horrible. Well, and it seems like the way that the media has really covered this, you know, since since this started, is they don't want to address the issue in and of itself. They either want to tie Clinton to him or they want to try tie Trump to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I ended up thinking, like, why does this have to be a partisan thing? Because everything's a partisan thing these days. Well, I, I, I mean, I get that, but... <laughs> the, but... There, there, there are. It other, gives you a headache thinking about it. It, it, it does. It does because to me, th- those are, those are the easy fish in a way, you know, to sort of target, yeah. you know. But it, it's so much more. It's beyond, you know, a, a president or an ex-president. There are a lot of people who were involved with him. And I think the average person really has no idea just how weird of shit the people they look to look up to or into you know when it comes to the super rich and people who I, I don't even know the the words I would use for it but people who when, when you make a certain amount of money and you're that far above the average person in the stratosphere and you get to the point where you're attending parties on you know a billionaire's island mm-hmm. and shit like that um I just think that the average person has no clue that the people they vote for, the people they watch on TV, what they're really into. Mm-hmm. And if they had any idea, they would probably freak out. 
you know, you're probably right. You're because you know we we tend to think of oh well you know that's so and so and and they were in this movie and that movie and and you know we we might see pictures of them on YouTube or not YouTube um, Instagram yeah you know oh I saw them they were blah blah, blah. but we don't there's 24 hours in a day mm-hmm. and there are days when they don't post pictures or they go on vacation you don't know what they're doing and you know but but we don't want to think about that because mm-hmm. it's well but i like him as an actor i like her as an act you know there you know yeah there's more to it there there's more to their life that we don't know about yeah than we do this this arrest has the potential to go down as the biggest scandal in american history it I has the potential it yeah it has the potential to now whether whether they're going to fall through with it or not i have no idea yeah but the implications of it are so far-reaching yes it, it will really be interesting to see how this plays out and and how far they do go down the rabbit hole yeah um i i, I definitely am gonna keep more of an eye on this well do you th- where do you where do you think it's gonna end up probably know where i want it to though sadly and i hope i'm wrong but it's it's probably going to be a case of a whole lot of jibber jabber and he'll get a slap on the wrist and be out well here here's here's a question um and this, this is one i've been thinking about a lot for the last two days or so is who do you think was bankrolling epstein because when I look at when I look at the whole case, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me, and I, I could be wrong about this one, but to me, it seems pretty obvious that his role, in air quotes, that he played was in being uh, someone who provided blackmail mm-hmm. to 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 another party. That what he did ultimately was. Now, now, I'm not saying he was, you know, somebody who didn't indulge in this shit himself, because that that's pretty obvious. But that what he was being paid for and bankrolled for, it, that it looks like, was he was someone who hung out with world leaders, with celebrities, and allowed them to indulge in whatever sick, depraved shit they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And... They would that would be used as black potential blackmail material in the future against him. Mm-hmm. But that begs the question: Is who would he have been working for? The Rothschilds, somebody higher than that? That yeah. I mean, it's 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 a pretty deep question that I really don't know the answer to. Yeah, and I don't know that we'll ever find out. You know, I, my guess is that if anybody ever does, that will be kept under wraps. Yeah. You know, which is kind of a shame, but yeah, I mean, he he, he kind of reminds me of like um, almost like a from from Hollywood, the fixers back in like the thirties, forties, all the way up to the sixties, I think. Yeah, like the old school, like uh, like mob role. Yeah, that was played. yeah, where it was like, oh, okay, you know, uh, yeah, I'll take you to go do this stuff and snap a few pictures, and oh, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? Remember this? You know, that's what a lot of people thought about Hugh Hefner. Really, for years and years and years. No, people, th- there there had always been. Not not quite like a full fledged conspiracy, but there, there's been a, a, you know, like I wonder if that's not what what he does. He gets these people to party out at the mansion, you know, gets people. You know, you can j- j- follow this rabbit hole, right? Some you know ex celebrity comes out to party, hang out at the mansion, uh, 
you know, they get really drunk, get to indulge in whatever drug they want. There's some woman who's hitting on them. Then, you know, boom, find out, oh, hey, by the way, that girl, she was underage. Um, but we got it, you know, we got it on video, but don't worry, just follow along with the plan, do what we want, and you're, you're fine. That's a, I mean, that's, if you think about it, it's relatively genius. It's disgusting, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, you know, if you want people to do what you want and they wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah. That's a perfect way to get them to do what you want. Well, I mean, if you go down that rabbit hole, like I said on uh, YouTube, you'll find more than a few celebrities who all say that they go, Hollywood's run on a blackmail system. Mm-hmm. But, and I think it always has been. Really. Oh, I'm sure. You know. I'm sure. Um, gosh, what else do we have? Oh, a point I didn't touch on with the Nexium case. Have you seen this guy who's been making YouTubes about it ever since Keith Raniere's arrest, a guy named uh, Ben uh, Zemeckis. No. Look him up when you get a chance. And, it, and it's spelled S-Z-E-M-K-U-S. He's a guy who, for anybody not familiar, one of the things that he uh, talks about a lot is Nexium's connections over the years. And he's been polygraphed, gone through lie detectors, and he's passed them all with flying colors which is really interesting but he talks about a mixer or a nexium party that he was at back in 2007 and he talks about some of the people who were there in attendance with him he says you know not only did i meet keith ranieri and allison mack i also ran into stormy daniels oh which is you know interesting in and of itself but also anthony weiner huma abedin hillary clinton and a pretty big list of people. Ooh. So, th- ju- just trust me. Huh. Um, next time you're reading about Nexium, look this guy up. Interesting. Yeah. So I... this th- now this begs the natural question: Is Stormy Daniels uh, an MK Ultra robot? Oh my! <laughs> there would probably be weirder things that could happen there's almost nothing i could find out now about this crowd that would really shock me yeah it's getting that way it's getting that way they're they're just oh boy yeah yeah so another big subject that i feel like we need to hit on for however long a time is the pending iraq war uh uh, sorry the pending iran war oh boy yeah because uh, you know the what happened was there was a drone that mm-hmm. was, there was a drone uh, an american drone that was shot down uh over iran we were all ready to strike to uh fire missiles but supposedly at the last minute uh you know 15 minutes before it was supposed to happen trump goes what are the costs we can expect from this how many casualties would we be looking at and he was told somewhere in the realm of 150 and so he said, well, then it's not worth it. So hmm. so that's happening. But, you know, for, for anybody who's <clears throat> been following everything going on uh, in the Middle East for, you know, a very, very long time now, is uh, Iran is the mother load. Mm-hmm. They've really been after all along. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, the hotbed of the world's oil. 
And the idea, ever since the days of Reagan, of a pro-America, um, secular Persian state has made Washington salivate mm-hmm. for years and years. I mean, the idea of it has the potential to redraw the the map of the Middle East as far as players who who's allied with who, but potentially as far as geopolitics as well, because you know Russia and China are both allied with Iran, mm-hmm. and this would change a lot of things if there was a regime change that went down. Yeah, yeah, I. It almost makes me a little nervous. You know, I mean, we've basically uh, officially, I guess, been out of the Cold War for. 30, 40... Yeah. Almost 30 since 91. 91, okay, that's right. And, you know, like, I'm I'm really not eager to go back to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, you know... But this really... There's a lot of potential for some really bad shit. Yeah. And it, it, it bears keeping a closer eye on. Well, Iran is such an interesting case. I mean, it's really... It's, it's the most unique case, in my opinion... Um, anywhere right now on the global stage as far as any country goes. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this exact set of statistics before, but Iran has one of the biggest generation gaps of any country in the world because they had so many people who died in the uh, Iran-Iraq war. Huh. And essentially they have something coming close to two lost generations where yeah the what it the way it actually plays out on paper is that somewhere around 85 percent of the population is under age 40 and they say if you actually look at the demographic and and the other remaining 15 percent are old Uh uh-huh and if you look at some of the other statistics that are going on with the country when you really look at the youth, by all accounts of what's going on over there, is mosque attendance for Friday prayers in places like Tehran are below 1%, which makes it not... I believe they say that it makes it not just the mo- the least religiously observant of any Muslim country, but of any country in the world. Wow. And <clears throat> the youth, by all <clears throat> by all personal accounts, seem to be you know, highly secular, if not outright atheist. Like, they really don't want anything to do with the religion they were brought up with. Um, Probably more capitalist than even most Americans are. And they seem to... It seems to be a situation sort of similar to how China is now, where the government is awash in propaganda, but the young people sort of ignore it or laugh it off. They just look at it as a relic of their grandparents' time. So the thing that happens, though, is there's a lot of geopolitical strategists who have been talking about what to do with Iran for a while now, saying, well, this seems like it's going to turn out in America's favor, that in the next five to ten years, you're going to have the old generation or the Ayatollah's regime dying off. Mm -hmm. And... So anything that happens should happen organically. Because if we go in there and 
start firing drones and fucking up like we tend to do, mm-hmm. killing civilians, we're going to potentially turn all those people against yeah against us. But by that exact same hand, there's a lot of people in Washington, and way more so in there's a lot of people in Israel, who say if they're going to fire a missile and hit Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, or New York City, it's going to be in the next five to ten years. Because when you have a theocratic regime that knows its back is against the wall and that its days are numbered, that's when they're going to try to do shit. Wow. And the the comparison... I've, I've read a lot about this over the last couple months, but the comparison I uh, keep seeing coming up over and over again when it comes to geopolitical theorists is they compare the situation in Iran right now with the state of the Soviet Union back in the late 1980s, probably circa 88 or 89, where one of the things that we discovered when the the wall fell and we went into the Soviet Union is that outside of the ruling class, uh, the top military brass and their families, there are almost no true communists, in, in air quotes, that that was a mode of thinking that the average person had given up on years ago because, you know, they were all poor. Like, it, it clearly not worked for them. Mm-hmm. And they think that by that exact same token, we're going to find if we ever went into Iran that there's almost no Muslims outside of the, like I said, the ruling family, the top military brass and their families, let alone ones who were loyal to the Ayatollah. Wow. So... No, it, it's a it's probably the most unique set of circumstances, not just in that region, but of any country in the world. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with it. Yeah, I, I hope it goes the a good way. I don't want to say the right way, but or a good at least, way. At least, a, at least a beneficial way. Yeah, yeah. But, so that sort of gets us heading in the direction for today's topic. Yeah, it does. I thought it was an interesting lead-in to the topic. You know, anytime you're dealing with that part of the world, this topic is naturally going to come up and not not necessarily because they're any weirder with how they think about it than we are because it's probably just that's the perception that mm-hmm. the media tries to portray but and it is end times yes end, ti- end is, time prophecies whoo boy is that a rabbit hole and 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 very tunnely and holy in more ways than one. You know, we w- for anybody listening, this show was supposed to be done about two weeks ago. Yep. But for a couple different re- uh, personal reasons, we had to push it back uh, to today. And it's almost a good thing we did because this topic is so intimidating that... Not, not intimidating in terms of, like, you know, uh, scary or spooky exactly, but it, intimidating in terms of... It's so expansive. The it's so depth. long that how do you even begin to really cover it? it? Well, exactly. I mean, I you could probably teach two semesters worth of a college class on this and still and have still stuff not really to, even scratch the surface. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's definitely something. I have a I don't I'll say a passing interest, you know, because it is so, you know, it it feels out there mm-hmm. in a way. Um, but it's, it is and it's not. 
Yeah, I've always had a nerd interest in it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I told you straight from the get-go, I said, this is a dork topic of mine. <laughs> but, where? I mean, where do we even start with it? Like, um, you know, the reason I've always thought this stuff is important, um, or, I mean, I can't say always, because, you know, I've always had a really nerdy interest in it, in, in studying it, and, you know, because... The way I think a lot of these guys wrote it back in the day was that it was supposed to be um, like a code, almost, like like riddles. Because when mm-hmm. you see in at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, you know, when it's talking about the number of the beast, it says the number of the beast is a human number. And let anybody who can figure it out, go for it. Yeah. I mean, that's me paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so let's let's talk about what there is in the Bible. So I know there's Daniel. Well, here was one thing I want to say before going into this is, you know, when I've talked to a couple people online about this subject, um, people who are atheists, when they hear end time prophecies, uh, they say, well, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, how is this something that's, that's relevant to the current times? I mean, isn't this just for you know, people who sit and obsess over this stuff. And I go, no, no, it's not at all. Because the thing that you don't seem to understand is that whether you believe these things or not is kind of irrelevant because the people who run the world do. Mm -hmm. And a big part of foreign policy goes towards trying to set the stage up to see them fulfilled. So the rest of you are along for the ride, whether you like it or not. Interesting. Have you ever thought about that before? No, I, I really haven't. I, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm literally like my brain. It, it just kind of, I think it cracked. Uh huh. And and stuff is oozing out because I, how, it's, I mean that's I don't I get you of course can't have a self fulfilling prophecy from a prophecy from millennia ago. But at the same time, it, it, it has that air of, well, if we do these things, then we can usher this We can set the stage for, for the return of Jesus, for, I mean, the rebuilding of the, uh, the temple. What, I mean, whatever you want to have. But, like I said, the people who run the world, by and large, absolutely do believe in this stuff. If you go back and look at Reagan's foreign policy or George W. Bush's foreign policy, the bulk of it was set up for this exact reason so do they think that by helping that they're going to be put in charge like like what's the end game well the end game usually is their own it's not so much personal gain in so you know other than they believe this is what uh they've been destined to to do by being in power through their own conviction or belief in uh, the religion. I mean, you know, and one of the things I was saying this past week to a friend of mine who's an atheist that we were discussing this is I said, let's say, okay, let's say you don't live in America. Let's say you live somewhere where it's more immediate. You might live in Palestine and you're an atheist. Whether you believe in end-time prophecy or not is irrelevant because... The people around you are trying to set the stage for Armageddon. Wow. You have America 
and America's leaders, you have Israel's leaders, you have Saudi Arabia's leaders, you have Iran's leaders. I mean, you're kind of at their mercy. That's true. And and I think that's something that the general person doesn't think about. No, of, of course you they know, don't. Because you're... I'm, and I guess why would you, to a point, you know, because we're we're so used to, you know, politics is this realm and, you know, but I'm... And religion's I'm, another realm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a convenience of having an American mind frame where, you know, even though this, it almost never really truly pans out this way on paper, church and state are separate. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's, that's such a new way of looking at the world. And by and large... When you're talking about the elite again, a lot of these people are into such weird shit that the average people like person has no clue. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway, that was that was me kind of going on a short tirade there. But but it, but it is it, it it is good to know you know hey you know pay attention to this kind of stuff you know because whether or not we can do anything about it that probably remains to be seen. But I think it's something that, you know, more people should be aware of. Right. You know, the, the people that, maybe not necessarily that you're electing, but the people that are getting elected, you know, understand what their end goal might be. And, you know, so at least, I don't know, at least we're in the know. Well, let me ask you this question, like starting at the outset. <clears throat> the, the article I had sent you, I'm not going to dive too deep into it yet, but what were your initial thoughts on it? Um, uh, um, my, I'm, go- I'm going to, on, on the YouTube video, uh, I'm going to attach a link yeah. to, to the article. Yeah. Um, my, my initial coming from where I come from in a historical perspective, mm-hmm. um, it, it felt very anti-Semitic. Um, that, that, that was my, like the first thing that sort of punched me in the face. I mm-hmm. was like, oh, okay. Um, hmm. But at the same time, I I did think you know that some of it, I I want to say, I guess made sense to a point. Yeah. Um. You know because we w- when you look at at Reagan and and H W Bush, there there was that mentality. You know, one of the things I'd always wondered or had a real curiosity as to how it happened was. When you look at the state of the Republican Party, you know, there's always been this um, view from the outside, I guess, that there was a very anti-Semitic, anti-Israel edge to it, especially in the early days, you know, when the, well, not the early days, but in the middle part of the last century where, you know, there was, uh, you had Prescott Bush being aligned with Adolf Hitler. You had so many guys like Henry Ford, Walt Disney, mm-hmm. that were real admirers of fascism and Nazi Germany. And when you look at the Republican Party now, there's almost this, um, not quite a love, but a fetish for, for Israel. Mm-hmm. And I'd always wondered how that came about and how it happened. And Reagan was really kind of the turning point, because on a historical timeline, what you had happen was... You kind of have to understand the the theology that's led us to this point and the way different people have interpreted the Bible. Um, In the 1800s, there was a a British theologian who was one of these people who obsessively studied Revelation and somehow didn't end up in a mental institution (laughs) for it. But um, 
he had this idea through combining a lot of different things, like a you know a knowledge of uh, geography, world politics, um, where different uh, tribes of people who uh, were part of the Bible ended up, and so on. And he came with this idea that Russia was one of the two countries which would be uh, Gog and Magog in uh, the final days. And their role was going to be to attack Israel. Now, in in hindsight, it seems pretty clear that he was more influenced by a sense of uh, British supremacy than he was anything because, you know, for one, Israel didn't exist in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. And for two, the rulers of Russia were almost to an anal retentive level Christian monarchs. Mm-hmm. So that's where you first started kind of seeing this mode of thought becoming pop um becoming influential because even though you know looking back on it it doesn't really add up in a in a logical sense this stuff was really popular influential i mean it always is when you have people coming along in any age who are saying i figured out end time prophecy i've cracked the code to be you know relevant to current events and i think maybe on a psychological level everybody likes thinking that they're they're that important yeah. that, that you know they they have to exist at, mm-hmm. the, at the end of the world but and then later on uh, in the late 1800s you had an Irish preacher who developed this theory that there were going to be two kingdoms in the end of times that God was going to have an earthly kingdom which was going to be Israel and a spiritual kingdom which was going to be all of Christianity and so that's where the idea of the rapture comes from, because you really don't find the rapture in Scripture unless you tried to use this idea and apply it to it and say this is what it's talking about. Really? Yeah, it's not... I just so- assumed it was in there. No, it's not oh. something that's really spelled out. This is an interpretation oh. that you know a guy came up with in the late 1800s, but he believed that all the Christians would be raptured up to heaven, and then the you know, the the final uh, tribulation, I guess, would all center around um, people who were Jewish by blood and religion. And they would be attacked from all sides and Jesus would come as a prophesied, you know, military defender or leader mm-hmm. of Israel. And then uh, 144,000 of the remaining Jews would, you know, see Jesus as the leader and then they would accept Christianity. And so... That's how, uh, anyway, that's how he believed it would be fulfilled. And that guy, in turn, was the teacher of a man named Cyrus Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, which, uh, are you familiar with that one? No, but it was mentioned in the article, and I was, I'd never heard of it, but. Yeah, the Schofield Reference Bible is really popular among Pentecostals, among the born-again Christian crowd. Really, a lot of a lot of evangelical groups, but it's it's almost impossible to understate how influential it was because it was a Bible that in the footnotes section <clears throat> talked about what you know pinpoint verses and say this is what it's talking about. This is you know this this is what's going on in current times to um, to give you an explanation and. You know that influenced all those guys from uh, Hal Lindsey, who wrote the late great Planet Earth, 
it you know Jerry Falwell, Jimmy Swaggart, mm-hmm. um, Oral Roberts, Billy Graham, everybody. All the people whose names we know. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, that's kind of where the idea of the rapture comes from, I guess. But there's this prevailing um, sense of thought that if Israel is God's chosen people, then America is God's uh, almost chosen people, I guess. Second place trophy? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jerry Falwell had this, you know, even though he was with, within the the televangelist community, he was one of the the least popular w- within, uh, you know, among them. Mm-hmm. But he was the most influential when it came to American politics. He was buddy buddy with Ronald Reagan, and they used to sit and talk about this stuff all the time. Reagan would plan out a lot of his uh, his foreign policy as to some of Falwell's uh, whims. You know, he started these... Um, do, do you ever see they'll, they'll advertise uh, with, with Protestant churches? Um, once a year, a lot of them will say, we're going to take a trip to Israel, do a Holy Land tour. Mm-hmm, I've heard of that. That all came from Jerry Falwell, and what those actually were was they weren't sightseeing things. They were Zionist propaganda tours that... It was, you know, they kept everyone away from not just Muslims, but from Palestinian Christians because they were wanting to say that Palestinians are just all savages. And, you know, they're dead set on marching on Jerusalem, fulfilling, you know, the the role which we're going to, going to apply to them in Revelation. And we want to show... Um, what's the, the word I would use, the set of words I'd use... They want to show Israel in such a light, or the people there, of saying, oh, uh, you know, we, we love America so much, you guys are playing our little brother role in the end times, and this has all been ordained. Uh, yeah, that these Holy Land tours that you see churches take now, they were all part of that. Wow. So we almost, it's almost like a, you know, if, if we help you, then maybe in the end times you'll speak up for us. And well, and one you know. of, yeah, and one of the things that talked about in the article that that's so interesting is that you know when you cut away a lot of the 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 BS behind it and or the, the jargon anyway, is that the implications of what this stuff is saying is that you know we're going to unleash nuclear war. See untold numbers of people die. Yeah. Well over a third of the world because that I mean that uh, the one third figure that's something I can go into later. But that all this death and destruction has to come just so uh at the end of days there will be a small handful of Jews left who will all basically go like you know the fulfillment is they're going to get down on their knees except Jesus and say all of our ancestors were totally wrong about everything and <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> could Hitler have been a worse enemy <laughs> oh, I, I, oh god that's so arrogant I just oh my goodness so many 
so 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 many things. So anyway, <sighs> um, I'd interrupted you like a, a while back, but what were you saying? To let's you know back away from this part for a second and. You were, I believe, starting to ask what was in the Bible. Like, uh, you started to say Daniel. Yeah. So, so of course, you know, everybody's familiar, or at least has a passing familiarity with the book of Revelations. Right. Whether or not anybody can understand it, which I'm pretty sure nobody can, because it's very strange. Well, everybody seems to have an idea. Uh, very true. Very mm-hmm. true. Yes. I, I don't know that there's probably a human on Earth, even, I mean, no matter atheist or fundamentalist whatever it is you have an opinion on the book of revelations do you know do you know the thing i always heard growing up uh my father told me was that the mental institution that they have uh up the street that he goes i would be willing to bet that over half the people are there because of the book of revelation <laughs> i mean because honestly, they can't wrap their head around it and they just sat have dwelled and dwelled and dwelled on it I, you know, and to me, it, it had, like, trying to read it, because I've tried. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, a friend of mine and I in college, I, I have to say, one night we got a little drunk and we were like, let's figure out the book of Revelation. Oh, that's always oh, fun. Oh, man, <clears throat> that was, that was a bananas night. Well, let me ask you this. I'm not sure if I ever asked you this, but how much of the Bible have you read? Um, I think I skimmed Genesis, mostly because it was a beget, 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 and a whole bunch of names I couldn't pronounce. Um, I have read some of the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. just, you know, trying to like, oh, what's all the fuss about? Yeah. And, you know, then like my eyes go crossed and I think I black out. But yeah, I'm, I'm not a very, I, I was not raised in a biblical type right. household, um, you know, and I'm I'm a naturally curious person, so uh-huh. you know I'll hear things or what's what's this? You know what what are you talking about? But other than that, yeah, I'm. I've read it cover to cover a couple times, and it was pretty recently. Like like you said, it wasn't you know growing up or anything. It was about four years ago, I guess, when I had a class that I had to read the Quran for, hmm. and you know read it cover to cover which it's not as long as the bible it's really about the size of maybe the old testament oh maybe um or may, maybe the new testament actually maybe it's even shorter than that but it's not it's not very long lengthy reading you know and it's not that intimidating of a book to look at i mean even though it can be i guess but it's essentially one book from one time period with one author and that's the way I kind of looked at it at the outset and you know I read it I really enjoyed it actually and then but when I finished it I said you know I've never read the Bible and so I just made it my you know thing over the next year um, I'm somebody I read about a book a week anyway wow. but I said with this one I go I'm just going to read a little bit um, every day you know some days I would read an entire book mm-hmm. of, the, of the Bible but I said, I'm going to take the next year and I'm going to read, read it front to back. Not, not do the thing where you skip around because one of the things I've always thought that is kind of um, maybe not short-sighted or uh, uh, annoying about a lot of uh, Christians is, you know, I, I came to see pretty early on that I don't think a lot of Christians have actually read the Bible 
I think they just hear things from uh, that their Sunday school or their preacher told them growing up, mm-hmm. or you know, at best they've memorized a handful of uh, you know cherry picked verses mm-hmm. here and there. But I've always thought that you can't really do that. That if you want to understand it, you have to read it like you would, you know, a, a Stephen King novel. Yeah, or, any text. Yeah, in, yeah, any kind of book, you have to approach it like that because so much of it builds from what was before it. And when I hear somebody quote a Bible verse, I say, can you tell me the verse that comes before that or after it? Or what's its context in the story? Or who's the one actually saying it? Or what are they talking about? Because, you know, if I, like, for example, if I gave you a book the size of it, like Lord of the Rings or Moby Dick or whatever, you wouldn't, you know, say, okay, open up to page uh, 400, Go to paragraph four, sentence three, read that in a, you know, cherry picked, like out of context way and say, well, I understand what the book's talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, everybody. That's such a good point. Yeah, everybody implicitly understands that with any other book, but Except for some reason for, for the Bible, they don't think of it that way. And so that's the way I looked at it, and I thought the only way I'm ever going to understand the book is if I approach it like that, if I just start out. Don't skip around and read it cover to cover. Because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's literature. It is just like any other book. I mean, yeah. you know, on on one level. Well, I think it was about a month ago, maybe, when we were talking about this in a group chat. And um, I gave, like, a rundown. On it. I took, like, 30 minutes and just, you know, hammered it out. Like, how would you summarize the Bible? Like, on a basic narrative story. And... um. It's not an easy one to <clears throat> to summarize, but it's yeah. it's probably easier than than some people think. <clears throat> the um, well, you said you've read Genesis. That I mean lays most of the foundational groundwork for it. Mm-hmm. Like most all the stories that people hear in Sunday school growing up are from Genesis. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Adam and Eve, you have Cain and Abel, you have Noah, you have Abraham, and you know he's got two sons, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. You have uh, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. You have Joseph uh, being, you know, sold by his brothers into slavery. So they all end up in Egypt, and then 500 years later, uh, they're slaves by now. And then Moses comes and liberates them. <clears throat> then, you know, he Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and the, you know, authors Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy even though he dies in the end of Deuteronomy. So it's Spoiler. He pro- so he probably didn't write all of it. <laughs> I mean, not to nitpick, but... So then after um, after Moses, uh, Joshua uh, comes and picks up for him. And the people, <clears throat> for a while, are ruled by judges. The most famous of them are probably Deborah, Samson, and Gideon. And the people, however, say, we don't want to be ruled by judges. We want to be ruled by kings like every other nation around us. So God anoints Saul and then David and then Solomon. And after Solomon, uh, well, and David, for example, wrote the book of Psalms. And Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and probably Song of Solomon. Probably, even though, like, that's kind of uncertain that could go either way but after the death of Solomon that's where the story gets a lot more complicated because 
the two, well, what was one nation, it splits at this point. You have the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the Northern Kingdom is ruled by Solomon's uh, top general or commander whose name was Jeroboam. <clears throat> and <clears throat> that was one of the things I forgot to say is that in Genesis, uh, Jacob, who's Isaac's son, is renamed Israel after he makes a covenant with God and he has 12 sons. Joseph was one of the brothers and they become the 12, 12 tribes. tribes of Israel. So 10 of the tribes live in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom you have uh, Solomon's son whose name was uh, Rehoboam and he rules over the other two tribes. So to make a really complicated story short I guess um, you have Israel and Judah becoming intertwined in a number of different world conflicts that went on during the period. Uh, Babylon comes in and essentially wipes the the ten tribes from history, although the southern kingdom is left to stay. Then Persia comes in and defeats Babylon, and then you have Alexander the Great come conquer the known world and the empires divided up among his generals then for a while uh, control of Palestine by that point is but uh, comes between both Egypt and Syria who ruled at varying times there was a brief independence period under the Maccabees and then the Roman Empire takes over which brings you up to Jesus, but in the Bible, there's a number of um, there's you have what are called major and minor prophets, and that's really the second half of the entire Old Testament, starting with you know after um, the wisdom books like Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, like I said, and major and minor prophets aren't by, by denoting them as major or minor. It's not talking about how important they were. It's all by length. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and sometimes Daniel is lumped in, but really those three. And then you have the minor prophets who in the Jewish Bible, are it's just one scroll. It's just called the Twelve because they can all comfortably fit on one scroll. Oh. But that was the basic rundown I could give the Old Testament. I mean, that's taking a really lengthy narrative and condensing it in a really kindergarten dumbed down way but uh yeah interesting i i don't think i realized a lot of that but so how do we get from that mm -hmm. to revelation like how, how does that are you asking for a new testament rundown <laughs> um <clears throat> the rundown of the new testament since we're already like going this route <clears throat> the four Gospels are different accounts by four different authors of the life of Jesus, and they all roughly co cover the, a similar set of events, but the authors who wrote them all clearly had different motivations <clears throat> for writing. For example, Matthew, the book of Matthew is the most uh, commented upon or written about book in the entire Bible. And the reason for it is because 
Matthew was interested in using the story of Christ to sell to religiously observant Jews because the the entire narrative of Matthew when you read it it's set up in harking back to prophecies from the Old Testament from a number of prophets saying Jesus fulfilled this Jesus must be the Messiah because this this and this so on Um, Mark is more interested in like the human side of the suffering aspect Luke is more interested in the the charitable side of Jesus like for example um, you know uh, healing the sick um, the things he did for poor people etc which uh, if I remember right Luke um, the way the the common interpretation is that Luke was a doctor and so makes sense I guess uh, Mark, the author of Mark, they still don't even know who that was. They just still say the author referred to as Mark wrote this. Oh. So, but John, for example, um, really isn't interested in any of that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar to each other, um, which is why they're called the Synoptic Gospels, but John really isn't similar to any of them. Um, John is pretty much exclusively just interested in the idea of Jesus as God incarnate to the point he only appeared to be human. It's entirely interesting, like this, uh, not a cult, but this entire like mystic or supernatural nature of Jesus, I guess. So the four gospels like all cover that, and w- when you when you read them, it's supposed to give the the impression that. Jesus was all of these things to all these writers, so it gives a composite picture, I guess. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then you have Acts, which is the story of what happened to the disciples and apostles after Jesus' death, where they traveled to, where they preached, so on. And then you run into a figure named Paul, which I thought was really interesting when, when I read the Bible for the first time to realize that in the New Testament, Jesus isn't the true main character of the New Testament. The true main character is a guy named Paul, who was from the area that's now Turkey or Anatolia um, probably by blood I mean this was before the Turks were present in Anatolia so by blood he would have been um, he probably would have been a Greek even though he was a Roman citizen and a Jew by religion um, it's probably a subject we'll go into later but the terminology used in the old days of what constituted a Roman were a lot muddier than other ones. Have, mm-hmm. have, we, have we ever talked about this before? I feel like we have <clears throat> at least, you know, because I, I feel like I discussed that recently with somebody, you know, that it wasn't necessarily a geographical thing. Right. You know, because they were kind of, I mean, it was everywhere, but well, it, it wasn't. The easiest way I could explain it is that back in, back in those days, um, if you called, if somebody was written about and they were referred to as a Spartan or a Macedonian, or Athenian or something like that, for example, there were all kinds of things you could surmise about that person by that descriptor. Like, you could also imply uh, what ethnicity they were, what religion they were, um, what their form of government was, so on, like that. It, you know, just just by going back and reading history and looking about their the civilization, Rome wasn't really like that, though. Rome was an entirely political construct, that was based on two things, uh, conquest and taxation. Uh, wherever they would conquer became Rome, mm-hmm. in air quotes. 
you know, you uh, one, one of their big qualities was uh, going places and uh, conquering, but propping up puppet rulers and letting people keep their traditions and religions and allowing the one of the locals to rule over them because it made, you know, insurrection that much less likely. Mm-hmm. But generally anybody who paid taxes to Caesar was called a Roman. So a lot of times in the New Testament, when they talk about somebody being a Roman, they're not talking about them being a, an Italian. They're talking about them being uh, a Jew who paid taxes to Caesar. Mm-hmm. A Roman citizen versus a true Italian Roman. Right. Yeah. And say, like, with with Rome as a political construct, it was barely even based in the city of Rome, except at the very beginning. You know, it later became uh, Constantinople, mm-hmm. and then later the Ottoman Empire, and present-day Turkey, which, you know, that's, that's, that's one that we'll probably get into later on. But, yeah, um, Rome was really uh, different from the way a lot of people understand because because like I said if we were talking about somebody being a Spartan you knew they lived in Sparta mm-hmm. um, you knew all kinds of things about them just by that descriptor alone but Rome calling somebody a Roman really wasn't like that but and there were a no, number of other figures in the Bible who were like that like you know just, I mean well just staying with sticking with the New Testament for example another figure would be uh, King Herod the one who they talk about, you know, trying to uh, kill baby Jesus, the yeah. stories in church. Well, Herod was somebody who was a Roman, uh, but he was also, a, religiously, he was a Jew. So politically, he was a Roman. Religiously, he was a Jew, but ethnically, he's what we would now call an Arab. So the lines of descriptions in that time period were really muddy, mm-hmm. like I said. So... The main figure in the New Testament is a guy named Paul, who the story goes was a religiously observant Jew who took a lot of, you know, uh, arrogant pride, I guess, in persecuting Christians. But he's on the road to Damascus one day and gets blinded. There's just a glow of light where he hears a, he never sees Jesus, but he hears a voice telling him, um, you know, stop persecuting my followers and basically saying, I want you to be the my messenger to the Gentiles. So he writes all these... The rest of the New Testament is filled out with what are called epistles, but they're letters mm-hmm. that Paul wrote, in some cases to other disciples, in a lot of cases to churches and other places like you know, all, all the books you've, you've heard, like uh, Romans would be like... Um, a letter to the Romans, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, so on. Those were all letters written to different churches, church communities. So the epistles make up the bulk of the New Testament by a large margin. And then the final one is Revelation, which was written by John, which is believed to be the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. When, but this is decades and decades later when he's being held in uh, captivity. And there's beyond that, there's not a lot that people know. In some interpretations, this was a dream that he had. In others, this was a, a vision that he saw, you know, clear as day in like a mystic sense or something. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of how you arrive at it. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's quite the way to end things 
yeah in the story (laughs) yeah yeah it's like here's a whole story and by the way here's some weirdness yeah you know and we're just gonna kind of leave that hanging because right um yeah it because i mean there is there is so much to unpack yeah. In I mean in Revelation and 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 that's just dealing with with one religious aspect of end time prophecy. Right. You know, it to me Revelation has always sort of had a Nostradamus kind of feel. Right. You know, where it's like I'm going to talk in riddles and you're not going to know what I'm saying so that basically you could make it anything you want. Well, the problem I've always had with Nostradamus and um Thunderpud number 2 who's sadly not present today. Uh, and I had talked about on a past show was that the subject of Nostradamus came up and the opinion I've always had of him is I think the story we were telling is that I can remember when uh, Y2K was there was the build up to it and Mm -hmm. there was a big commercial cash grab very much I remember that yeah really similar to like with 2012 a couple years ago well I can remember being in a bookstore at the mall back when I was a teenager and on a front table they had a book of Nostradamus prophecies and some author had edited them into like a month by month thing so that you could look up what year what year you were in and it would say you know for this month this is what Nostradamus says and this was in 19 I believe this was 1999 I think I could I could be wrong but the the prophecy for June, which was that month I was looking at, said the the uncrowned son of the king will fall from the sky and the world will mourn, and that was the same month when uh, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s mm-hmm. plane crashed. And we were laughing about that, and I'm like, you know, to some people, maybe he was the uncrowned son of the king, but I think to the majority of everybody, he was just some dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know that that's a story that... Uh, you know, housewives who read a lot of Reader's, Reader's Digest or people who gorge on uh, A&E or something like to believe that the Kennedys are America's royal family, but mm-hmm. they're really just people. Yeah. Um, they just happen to have a lot of hands in politics. And anyway, celebrities are, are royalty. Oh, not not yes. the Kennedys. God but knows. The thing I was getting to about Nostradamus prophecies is you can't predict anything to them if you actually read them. There are things that are so, um, they're so unclear and so, uh, is it, is opaque or oblique? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say is oblique the word you'd use where you can only really apply them to things in hindsight. Yes. I mean, there's nothing in them that's clear about anything, but it's just things where, you know, you can look back on the month, like read back in history and go, huh, maybe it was exactly talking about that. Exactly. And, and that's something, you know, you, you could never use it to predict when the world is going to end or when world war three is going to start or any of that, because there, there's nothing you can read it and you can read a million things into the same right. train. But what are you going to do? I mean, you don't know if you're right. You don't. There, there's nothing to really go on. But after it's happened, right. you can say, "Oh shit, this." Ma- well, when you read these things, then that's totally this. Uh, okay, that. I mean, I guarantee you, you could probably go pick up another book and find something that correlates to today, written 700 years ago. Because wasn't well, that like, you know, a, 
back back around Y two K time, the the idea of the Bible code became really big. Do you yeah. remember that? Oh yes. In fact, I think I have that book. Or I had. Do that you book. really? Uh huh. I've never bothered to sit down and look at it, but the way the <laughs> like for example, they'll say that <clears throat> based on using a code, you can go through it and say, okay, every fifty letters you know, it says this in, in this book or so on and so on. And you'll end up with things like, uh, like I remember one that I saw examples of that made me chuckle. It said, uh, Koresh the liar, like David Koresh. And I just thought to myself, you know, if I'm talking about like things every 50 letters and then every 35 letters and then up and down or diagonal, you can find anything you want. Exactly, exactly, and and that's that's that was my book, takeaway of any book of that size. Exactly, grab the dictionary. You can probably do it too. Yeah, you know that's. I mean, that, I could I, I could probably go through damn War and Peace and mm-hmm. you know circle random things on pages and words and come up with Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and and that was my basic takeaway, you know, because it was one of those things, you know. I'm again, I'm I'm just a curious person. You you give me something, and I'm gonna go. Oh, okay. Well, I, I will give you your chance. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, thinking the same thing. I was like, well, this, I mean, you haven't stumbled upon anything. You've created, you, you've basically found what you wanted to find. Right. And and that to me, the same thing with Nostradamus. And to a point, the same thing with Revelation, you'll see whatever you want to see in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a blueprint. It's not a, you know, well, we're going to go from point A to point B, and then, you know, this is going to happen, and then you'll see this. No, it's it's just random, wacky shit. And here, put your spin on it. Because five people could put five different spins on it, and they could all be right, they could all be wrong. It's... And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter to the normal person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if if your goal is to make something happen, then, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Absolutely. So, the number of the beast. Yes. Now, now we're getting into good territory. <laughs> 666, even though in some uncovered uh, writings on archaeological digs, they say it's 616. Hmm. So. Interesting. I'd not heard that. What what do you know about it? Um. The Omen. Yeah, I was just about to say besides the Omen. Oh, besides that, uh, um, 666, that's, I don't know, is, is it Satan's number or something? Well, in. In Revelation, it's called the number of the beast. Yeah. But... I always assumed Satan was the beast. When you go back and look at the historical context, the time it was written, it actually means Emperor Nero, or Nero Caesar in some oh. translations. Because during that period of time in Rome, numbers were frequently used to substitute for uh, for letters in oh. writing. And, yeah, 666 means Nero Caesar. Well, that makes a little more sense. Yeah. Well, it says it's it's a human number. It's almost like you could think of Revelation like a political cartoon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so. I mean, do, aside from say representing Nero or uh-huh. the Beast, 
What does it mean? What's what's its significance? Well, its significance is the way I interpret Revelation myself, and this is after reading it numerous times, is that what it's referring to <clears throat> is <clears throat> the fall of Rome. Okay. I think. Hmm. Um, gosh, uh, th- this one's a little complicated to go into, but most people naturally assume when they read Revelation that it's that this is the end of the world mm-hmm. it's talking about which it definitely can it's it's a book that's so wide open that it can mean almost whatever you want it to mean mm-hmm. does that make sense mm-hmm. like you know one of the things that I think is so interesting and different between Christian and Muslim end time prophecy is that Christian end time prophecy is really not clear mm. at all. Mm-hmm. It's something that is so shrouded and clouded with metaphor that there's never been an age where people haven't tried to apply it to current events. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the reason why people argue about it so much. Because it's so unclear, like I said, as to what what it really means. Yeah. Muslim end-time prophecy isn't like that. No, no. Just from, from the reading that I've done, it is very different. It is very specific. Yeah. Sometimes it had little bananas, but yes. <laughs> to an almost creepy degree in a lot of ways. Oh, yes. Yes. Like, um, I'm trying to think where, but before going into that, one of the, uh, the questions that I had for you is when we first started talking about the article at the beginning of the show, you said it seemed uh, a bit on the anti-Semitic side. I was going to say if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Um, for me, the, the author just almost to a point kind of seemed to come at it from, you know, these people are, you know, pro-Zionist mm-hmm. is, is, is the phrase that was really used. Yeah. And it was almost like, and here's why that's a bad thing. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's, it, it was all, it was putting a, a, I can't think of the, like a, like a detrimental spin or like a, you know, here's why they're wrong or here's why this is a bad idea. Right. <clears throat> well, there's a number of quotations that the article contains like when you know these are all uh, quotes that were given I mean it's not one that they publicized super heavily that they had said but by a different televangelist Mm -hmm. back at this point in time in the 80s like you know uh, James uh, James Robson um, what was the name of the group he was ahead of Uh, something about a focus on the family or oh uh, yeah, there. I've, it was something like that. Yeah, I, I can't remember the the name of the group he was the head of, but either way, that was him. He had a quote where he says, "There will be no peace until Jesus comes. Any preaching of peace prior to his return is heresy. It's against the word of God. It's antichrist. You know, you have." Uh, Which that doesn't even make any sense. Well, Jerry Falwell actually uh, had a more famous quote that I mean. Jerry Falwell said Jesus was not a pacifist. He was not a sissy. Yeah. Do you which, remember that one? Uh, yeah. Th- and that one, that's because, well, I mean, he 
he well I I could probably support both sides of that argument because I think you can support both sides of that argument with things from the New Testament. Well, here was here were some of the others. Um you know, you have a quote of Ronald Reagan speaking to Jerry Falwell. He says, "Jerry, I sometimes believe that we're heading very fast for Armageddon right now." And Ronald Reagan in 1980 says, "Israel is the only stable democracy we can rely on as a spot where Armageddon could come." Then you have uh, a guy, a guy who's Israeli, who's named uh, Rabbi Moshe Levinger, who was one of the terrorists who attempted to blow up the Dome of the Rock mosque. Where the way he quoted, and he said, "Zionism is mysticism." Zionism will wither away if you cut it from its mystical messianic roots. Zionism is a movement that does not think in rational terms, but in terms of divine commandments. What matters only is God's promise to Abraham is recorded in the book of Genesis. And another rabbi was quoted as saying, we should not forget that the supreme purpose of the ingathering of exiles and the establishment of our state is the building of the temple. The temple is the very top of our pyramid. And there's... There's this idea, you know, I've always joked about this, how if you spend um, any time hanging around people who are doomsday preppers, uh, survivalists, things like that, which which I have, I, I know a lot of these guys, but there's a, a joke that uh, Jason and I have always had that you learn pretty quickly that when they're they're always throwing around the word globalist, that the globalists are the enemies, that usually that's a code word for Jew mm-hmm. in a lot of those circles. And Zionist is another one that kind of fills that role as well mm-hmm. because it's a more polite way of saying Jew. So the term Zionist has its own like problematic connotations in a lot of ways when discussing this stuff because... It's so easy to look at and say, okay, this is just, you know, strictly anti-Semitic material. But, you know, one of the main perceptions that a lot of people on that end of the spectrum have is that there's um, like a like a shadow government ruling America where mm-hmm. the, the Jews are the ones who really run the show in Washington and so on and so on. And... The thing I would use is like almost, I would use this as almost a counter argument to that is that, you know, there's a lot of things I understand. Like, I get that, you know, maybe in Washington, the the Israeli lobby is pretty oversized compared to some of the other countries, and that we seem to have a lot of vested interest in um, foreign policy that doesn't necessarily help us. It's more beneficial for Israel than anything. But the reality of it is, is that Jewish people in Washington are really outnumbered about by 50 to 1 by people who are white Christians who believe this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that like this stuff is, you know, coming from this, this shadow government of, um, you know, Jewish people. It's, the, it's people like Ronald Reagan, like Jerry Falwell like Pat Robertson, so on, who believe that America's role is to be Israel's little brother figure in the end times. 
that do you understand what I mean yeah, by that? Yeah. Yeah, I would almost use that as like a counter argument to any of that. Huh. That those guys far and away outnumber any any Jewish people in in Washington or anywhere. Yeah. And that make especially over here that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. But no, ju- I mean it's not just Washington like I mean any churches mm-hmm. like in in this area. I mean that's a mode of thought that's heavy that America has a definite role to fulfill in the end times and it's like I said it's Israel's you know scrappy little brother or the muscular one or something yeah yeah it's we're we're their protector yeah you know so that we yeah so that we can fulfill that that prophecy right huh well I think we're at a point right now where I think we can sort of transition let's so, so I think what uh, what what we're gonna move to starting with this topic mm-hmm. is we're gonna we're gonna break things up. Right. So we're gonna kind of leave you hanging a little bit um, as to what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go ahead and sign off for this week, and we will be back in two weeks. Boom. For the conclusion of end times prophecy part two hold on to your seats (laughs) this is a test of the emergency broadcast system the broadcasters of your area in voluntary cooperation with the fcc and other authorities have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an emergency if this had been an actual emergency you would have been instructed where to tune in your area for news and official information this concludes this test of the emergency broadcast system